This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Roberto Brocampo, personal finance analyst. Con mucho gusto. Es musculoso, es grande. What's that mean? I have big muscles. Oh, not really, not really. (laughs) All right, is this in this episode? It is our final in the series on major life events, and I mean really final. Motley Fool wealth planners Megan Rinsfield and Sean Gates join us to talk about planning for death. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, guess what? I have three things for you. Yes. All right. Number one. (laughs) Party like it's 1938. So you may remember from our May 7th episode, I said, party like it's 1987, because the performance of the S&P 500 from January to April was the best since 1987. But then came May, which was the pooper at the party. S&P 500 was down 6.5%. But then June came and said, let's get this party restarted. And tell me, how did Michael rate for popularity in 1954? What's that from? When, when Diana was on the show and she just talked for like an hour on how different names ranked, and then she was like, and then in 1942, Susie jumped three 1358, places. 1358, Ezekiel made a comeback. Uh, no. And we just stared at her, and we were just laughing. And I was just crying. I was laughing so hard, and she just kept going. Yes. She kept going. I remember. <sighs> Anyways, so June, this past June, All the right, S&P 500 returned 6.9%. It was the best June since 1955, but the Dow returned 7.2%, the best June for the Dow since 1938. So, pretty amazing. June also means that we've reached the midpoint of the year. So, halfway through the year, S&P 500 returned 18.4%, best first six months since 1997. But it's not just the S&P 500, small caps, mid caps, international stocks. Bonds were up 6.1%. So, this is only the 10th time since 1980 that both stocks and bonds are up more than 5% in the first half of the year. Oil is up 25%. Gold at a six year high. It led one Reuters writer to say this is the best first half for financial markets ever. It's just been an extraordinarily good year. But to be any kind of. Where's my awfulizer here? Not a whole lot of awfulizing. That's it. Just a good year to be an investor. And in fact, there's even more good news, which leads me to number two. And that is longest expansion ever. So this mark, month marks the 121st month of the current recovery, which began in June of 2009. That surpasses the 120-month expansion that happened from the 90s, ending with a dot-com crash. This makes it the longest economic expansion on record, the record starting in 1854. That said, the, it's strength is not matched by its length. So, in terms of how much it's grown, GDP has grown about 24% or so, less than half of the expansion of the 90s, and uh, the, the strongest expansion happened in the 60s, where the, market, the GDP grew over 50%. So, still very impressive, though, that it has gone on as long as it has. That said, there are some concerns that it's petering out a little bit, which is why the Fed has hinted that it may actually cut rates. That said, the bond market is not waiting. Interest rates have been going down. At some point earlier in July, the 10-year Treasury 
fell below 2% for the first time since 2016. The drop in interest rates is part of what has fueled the surge in the stock market as well as the bond market, because when rates go down, bonds go up. So, generally, in the short term, it's good. The only thing that is not so good about that is that we're already starting to see the yields on savings accounts go down. So, Goldman Sachs with its Marcus account, Ally Bank has already started lowering the rates on their cash accounts. So, you may want to lock in some of these quote unquote higher rates, still not very high, but by getting like a one year, two year CD, because I do expect the rates on savings accounts to go down. So, that's number two. Number three, totally different topic battling loneliness with benches in Britain. So, social isolation is actually a significant health issue, according to AARP, can have the same impact on smoking 15 cigarettes a day, because oh. it can uh, lead to higher heart, more heart disease, higher blood pressure, even dementia. The American Psychological Association says that up to 40% of Americans over the age of 45 suffer from chronic loneliness. Oh. I know that's sad, but it, people of any age can be, feel lonely. So, the jolly folks in the United Kingdom have decided to combat this by naming a minister of loneliness, something we mentioned about a year ago on the show. But there's even a, a more recent uh, initiative that I read about in England, and that is the establishment of chat benches. Basically, putting benches in parks with a sign that says something along the lines of, the happy to chat bench. Sit here if you don't mind someone stopping by to say hello. Thank you. Yeah. So, according to an article on mentalfloss.com, for people who feel isolated in their daily lives, the benches are an opportunity to make a connection with someone new. And they also give people who want to help the lonely members of their community a way to do so. One of the towns in England that's doing this is called Burnham-on-Sea. So, the Burnham-on-Sea police community support officer, Tracy Grobler, said, The sign simply helps break down the invisible social barriers that exist between strangers who find themselves sharing a common place. Simply stopping by to say hello to someone at the chat bench could make a huge difference to the vulnerable people in our communities and help them make their life a little bit better. So, reading this article led me to another Metal Floss article about the increased uh, amount of multi generational playgrounds or even playgrounds geared towards older folks with Aww. like ellipticals and, and stationary bikes. Uh-huh. Same sort of intention, partially as exercise, but partially to get people out, get social. Which I just love because hopefully soon in the future I won't be the only person over 12 year old swinging on swings because I love swings. I can't do it anymore. I get nauseous. Um, I love it. I love jumping off swings. I love doing backflips off swings. Love it. Anyways, Wait, you're 50. Remember that? Shh, don't tell anyone. And that, Allison, is what's up. Your swinging days are almost over. <laughs> this episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Through Molecule's reinvented air purifier, Molecule doesn't just collect air pollutants, it destroys them. This includes viruses, bacteria, gaseous chemicals, and mold. When you turn on Molecule, you're creating the purest air possible, combating allergy season by destroying them in your home. Allergens, that is. (laughs) Molecule is easy to use and also has a clean, sleek, and modern design. I have lost count of how many people here at The Fool have bought a molecule because we suffer here so much from allergies and mold and all that bad stuff here in Virginia, and fools swear by their molecule. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. That's molekule.com and promo code FOOL75. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. The wine and the song like the seasons have all gone. Well, this is it. 
the last in our series on major financial events and how to tackle them with the help of Motley Fool Wealth Management Planners. Sister company of the Motley Fool. There we go. <laughs> and so today we have Megan Rinsfield and Sean Gates, and you guys are going to talk to us about death. We are. This, yes. <laughs> There's not much else to say about it. It's time. Well, it's time to talk about it. And not only about how to prepare for it yourself, but how to help those around you and a little bit about how to, um, I don't know. It's just all, it's just all so much and tough and emotional and financial all at the same time. So let's just get into it, shall we? Let's yeah. do that. All right. So first we're going to talk about yourself and how to prepare yourself for death. And it's all about those financial documents. Isn't that right, Megan? Absolutely. So we talk to people quite frequently about just having this area kind of buttoned up. And it's one of those things people put off forever because they don't want to think about their own death. I mean, imagine that. Um, but it's something that's so important, figuring out for the people left behind what you want to happen to all these assets. Because if you think about not doing that, like what's the alternative? You're just like, I'm leaving, I'm dead, I'm not going to care anymore, right? But the people left behind then have to deal with two big burdens. One is the fact that you're not there, and the second is they don't know what you wanted to happen to all these things. So the big three documents are having a will, a medical directive, and a power of attorney. And then if you have particular feelings about um, being resuscitated, having a DNR on file is really helpful. we can get into specifics, but I don't know if Sean has stuff to add there. Well, I just wanted to jump in with a story from a client. It's not exactly related to the will and the medical directive, but um, this was more trust work, which is another doc, uh, set of documents that you could have in place to kind of distribute your assets. And there's some other benefits, but mostly distribute assets. And in this case, I think it's relevant to know that, at least from my experience, Death seems to happen quicker than most people expect. So I think when you get at death's door, you might think that it's a slower process because you want to fight it. You want to be optimistic about what's happening. But uh, I had a client who was diagnosed with cancer, and um, the prospects on the initial treatment looked good. So we kind of delayed implementing some things. Uh, she was in the process of getting remarried. Um, and oh, so wow. uh, all of these things kind of just got kept getting pushed back and she passed suddenly and the documents weren't quite in the way that we had hoped now luckily we were able to adjust some of the beneficiary uh, information on her more named accounts but uh, the trust documents weren't quite there and the amount of effort that we had to go through to actually get the assets distributed in the way that she wanted was tremendous Uh, normally in a trust document you have to name successor trustees. And in order to get a successor trustee named, you have to notify every beneficiary of your trust document. And in some cases, that could be 100 people. It could be several charities. And getting a hold of the charities is very difficult. Um, And so it's just a huge process and something I wanted to alert people to uh, so that they're paying attention to it. Yeah. and. I mean, one of the reasons that I am here talking about death is because of a personal experience that my dad died last year, and um, he did have a DNR in place, and about a year and a half before he actually passed, he had a real scare, and the DNR that he had on file was a copy, not the original, and so they didn't honor it. Mm -hmm. And then we went down to the next path, so he's in the hospital 
you know, with resuscitation procedures. And the medical directive is, you know, in a lawyer's office somewhere. So, you know, I'm supposed to be the person making decisions, and the person that's actually being called is like my brother who hasn't been in the picture for a while. So I think those types of things, like, it sounds really easy, like, I'm going to do this document, and I'm going to put it in a safe somewhere. But it's important to have it actually accessible, you know, by the people that need it very quickly. It's crazy that you have to have, like, the actual, what do you mean by the actual document? Like, did it have to be notarized, or they had to hold up to the light and tell that it was actual ink? Like, you couldn't? Yeah, this was really surprising to me that, like, uh, the EMTs, when they came to, um, you know, take my dad to the hospital, they check, like, is there a DNR on file? And I don't know what they did to say, like, this is a copy, this isn't the original, or, you know, everyone, when you're in, like, a nursing home facility, you have these big binders full of paperwork, and it's, like, up to the person that's on call at the time to kind of flip through and find the right thing. So it's just a matter of, like, even if you have everything lined up, which a lot of people don't even have these basic documents, but when you do, make sure you're, um, you know, checking on them periodically, especially if you're handing them off to another party that's going to be responsible at the point that they're needed. All right, let's move on to um, beneficiaries. Right. So, um, inspired by this event, somewhat, I, I personally did a beneficiary review of my accounts. And one of the things that I think a lot of people forget is your beneficiary designations are going to trump anything that you have in your will. Uh, And that's true mainly for retirement accounts, but could also be true for like annuities. Um, Really anything that you're naming a beneficiary, that is going to be what happens. And then for taxable accounts, you can actually set up um, beneficiaries through titling. So if you have a joint account with right of survivorship, that is a title that prevents you from going through probate and uh, accelerates you know, the passage of that asset to the other uh, named party on the account. There's also what's called a transfer on death or pay on death designation that you can go through for taxable brokerage accounts. Um, and doing that can really expedite um, passing assets after your death. And something that's been in the news a lot lately is social media accounts. And what do you do when someone you care about has passed on and their social media accounts live on? Yeah, this is such a big issue. And it's one of those things where the companies themselves are kind of in a bind because they can't violate your privacy rules and say, like, oh, so-and-so has passed. Like, here's their whole email history. Um, So now what's being done, you see a, a little bit more intention uh, around this from companies. So Facebook in particular has kind of this memorial account that you can set up. You can never, you're not supposed to, I should say, you can, uh, log into someone else's account um, without them there. Uh, so you can't actually gain access to you know, your relative's account, Facebook account after they pass. You can only set up like this memorial account and be an admin of it. And then for Gmail, they're not just giving access to Gmail. You can set these rules that say, like, if I'm inactive a certain period of time, like, assume I'm gone. Wow. And it will notify someone that you set up as a trusted contact. Uh, but even then, you have to be pretty explicit about what you want them to be able to access. So once you get some forms in place and these things, um, I imagine you should talk a lot to people about what you want. Yeah, just throw a party. 
Right? Yeah. Could you do that? I actually Just don't think that's a bad idea. Page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have some snacks, yeah. a few <laughs> drinks, everything will go down better. A surprise party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you uh, think about, um, you know, in all of this, we've talked about what do you want to happen to your assets and things, uh, but we haven't really talked about what you want to happen to your physical body. Uh, and there are more options than you might think. Um, so a lot of people uh, think like, oh, okay, I need to be buried or cremated and kind of end at that. Um, and one option that um, I was made aware of is body donation or body bequeathal. So you could actually, if you want to donate your body to science, um, register with a university that has a medical school and they will accept your body and use it for scientific purposes. And then uh, depending on the school, they can um, send you the cremains after they've you know, completed the research. But the re- purpose is really you're helping medical students learn more intricately about the body and you know, could lead to scientific um, advances. One interesting thing, so I think there are my, both of my parents wanted to donate their bodies to science because they just you know, don't care about their physical form, I guess. Uh, and they were not aware that you have to register ahead of time. So you have to have a program to accept it. Um, and in most cases, if you're registering with a program that's local, there's no cost to the family of this program. Um, in my dad's case, he had to register for a program that was across a state line. So you have to pay for transportation. But it's still relatively cost-effective compared to even cremation. Um, so for people who are you know, maybe just financially limited in, in terms of the choices that they have, um, that could be uh, an option. And then another consideration is just you, in most cases, cannot both be an organ donor and donate your body to science, uh, and that can cause some some discussion for sure. So I, I would just add, uh, when in talking about your final plans, I know we get to this a little bit later in the discussion, but um, talking with more than just your family is super relevant, and especially about you know how graceful you want to exit and what you might want to do to preserve it. So in some of the cases with clients that I deal with. Um, you know, they're not ready to go. And so they will take extreme measures. And this could be a financial burden. So for example, if you get cancer or some odd medical diagnosis, perhaps you sign up for an experimental trial, and it takes place in Mexico. And so you have to travel to Mexico, medical tourism is becoming a very large thing. Um, But most of those uh, treatments are not covered by traditional insurance. And so it puts a fairly significant strain on what already is potentially depleting asset base. And those are just knock-on effects of these conversations, because then you might have talked with your family about what your financial situation looks like, but then it changes dramatically in the last three months. And so you should just make sure you're keeping everyone up to date about what you're willing to go through, what you want to accomplish in the last moments. Uh, in case you are the type of person who have you haven't done all this yet and you need some other motivation it really is a gift to your family to do a lot of this and to have these discussions because you wanted to have the discussions because if there's any disagreement about either who gets what or how your remains will be handled or anything that you want that all worked out now 
Because something I've personally seen is a lot of disagreement and a lot of issues after someone dies, fights among the family members that go on for years that could have been resolved while the person was alive to say, like, this is what I want to happen and this is why. And if you don't like it, let's work that out now. And that's all taken care of now. Yeah, I'm dealing with that personally now. My dad, he's not that old, but he wants me to be the executor just because I'm a little bit more financially savvy. Uh, and he has a particular set of distribution rules that he has in place, and he talks to me about it, but he doesn't talk to the other beneficiaries about it. And I'm like, we should probably talk to them yeah. about it, and he yeah. doesn't want to, so I have to basically break his trust and go talk to them directly because it's it's going to cause problems in the end if we don't. So having those conversations preemptively is important. So for those who don't have a son that they can rely on that's a professional, <laughs> when do you call in a professional? And what? When, why, should? I'm up for adoption. <laughs> uh, so we hear from a lot of potential clients about the fact that they feel really comfortable managing their affairs while they're alive, but worry about how their spouse might uh, handle inheriting all these assets that maybe they haven't been involved with the management of, might not know what to do with. And that's really a point where we get involved ahead of time. Someone might think, you know, way ahead of time and say, well, you know, my dad died when he was 75 and I'm 70 now, so maybe I should get someone involved. And particularly, and I think Sean has been in this situation where people call because they've had a diagnosis. Yeah, for sure. So it can be that extreme if you have a tight handle on your your own finances. Uh, but in a lot of cases, it's just helpful to have an objective third party, especially if you haven't had any of these conversations with your family. Um, that's another time where we're kind of brought in almost as a mediator for these conversations, uh, not just between spouses, but between generations as well. All right, let's um, shift and talk a bit about what you can do if you are caring for someone who is in decline. Yeah, I think this applies to more and more people. We even have a Slack channel here at The Fool for people who... I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. For our parents. Yeah, yeah. our parents. Um, so it's mainly aimed at the generation that's taking care of their aging parents, but there are also people that I know of in situations where they might have a sibling um, who is just not as able to take care of themselves and needs help. Um, but if you're in the situation where you are going to be a caregiver... Um, just keep in mind that um, that is not a small task. That's not like something you can do after work sometimes. Uh, particularly as someone is kind of in their last stages of decline, it might require that you're there more kind of around the clock. Um, and so some important questions to consider from a financial perspective are, you know, what does your workplace allow in terms of flexibility for being able to, you know, maybe relocate and work remotely or work part time? Um, does your employer offer bereavement leave? Um, and, you know, that's ultimately a kind of end of life. But for, you know, that process where someone's really ill, can you take family medical leave? Um, that's something that is required by law, that you have t up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave and you can come back to your job. Uh, but 12 weeks of unpaid leave for a lot of people is really a non-starter. You know, going three months without receiving a paycheck and on top of that, the emotional burden of being a caretaker and being there full time can really take a toll. And I, I don't think many people 
think through the consequences. Like, obviously, if you get a call that a loved one is, you know, declining, you most of the time want to drop everything and be there. Um, and thinking through what the what the financial ramifications of that would be um, is a prudent task. Yeah, I would also. I think it could be easy for people listening to this to be like, "Well, I, I don't. I'm not going to be a caregiver. Why do I care?" But you very easily could be a caregiver by default. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of people haven't put the plans in place, and so if you're someone's son or daughter or brother or sister, uh, you might be the only person willing to give the time. Uh, and so, just these these rules should apply to everyone uh, because you could be a caregiver. I will say one of my friends just um, sent around her like will. She wrote it herself. She wrote out a full program for her memorial service. Wow! And was basically like that. Exactly as uh, Robert mentioned, you know, this is my gift to you. I don't want you to have to worry about it if I pass. Um, in the same email, she nominated me as the executor of her <laughs> estate and also kind of like a proxy caregiver, you know, kind of just an intermediary as well. And it's not a surprise to me, but it uh, may have been a surprise to other people in her family if she hadn't talked to them about it. He talked a little bit about the what an executor has to do. Like, how much of a burden is that it, to put it on someone? Be, it could be quite a lot of work. It can. And really, it is at the very highest level tying up someone's affairs after they pass and making sure that all of their assets get distributed per their documentation. So not necessarily per their wishes. If their wishes don't match the documentation, you have to go by the documentation. Uh, But it's a process that um, is very legal in nature. So, And it really depends on the amount of assets that someone has. So I guess technically I'm an executor for my dad, but there was really nothing to distribute. So that was a pretty easy process. Um, you still have to file a, a tax return, right? If you, um, so tax returns are not necessarily required. I mean, the um, the person themselves has to file, not the person themselves, but the dead person themselves. Yeah, the dead person that has to. That sounds like something the IRS would make yeah, you do. That has to file a final tax return. Um, if they had income that year, and then if your estate is above a certain level, then you would file an estate tax return. Um, so if you have very low income from the estate, it's similar to a trust for uh, tax filing purposes, um, that if the estate has income less than, I think, $350, you don't have to file a tax return. But the estate files a tax return while it's in the process of distributing all the assets. Oh, I hope no one ever asked me to be their executor, right? Like, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll totally be your executor. It's, and then they're dead. And then I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. Do I have to go call up their their company, their 401k? Do I have to go and, like, do work with all of their accounts? And do I have yep. to call up their brokerage? And I got to call up the, and I got to file a tax return and all that? Ugh. Yeah, you got to go through probate. So, like, my mom still hasn't probated her mom's. Uh, property that's like out in Kansas because you have to go to probate court in Kansas. So, ah, yeah. that sounds horrible. It's like if you own a truck, all your friends ask you to like help them move, and if you're the one financially savvy friend, everyone asks you to be their yeah. executor. Yeah, at this point, so we should say that any estate planning we think should be done by a qualified attorney. Right. There are some situations I guess it's okay to go online and get the online wills, but for the most part, I, I recommend you get legal help. 
And I would say that's probably the case for most people who are executors, especially if the estate has any assets. It's complicated at all, especially if there's property in multiple states. There are people who will help you go through this process. Because I know I'm the, I'm the executor for at least two estates, and I certainly plan on getting help if and when that time comes. Would you like to be the executor for our estate? I would be honored. I'm not going to ask that. Again. I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> but it's tricky, right? I mean, even finding an estate planning attorney can be a fairly daunting task because there are trust mills out there. I'm not saying that that's common, but I mean, you just there's all these decision trees that you have to go through. Another common thing that we get with clients is, in terms of the executor, is you have to provide the the death certificate and get. You, this is one of those cases where it can't be a copy in most cases. So you have to get the original. You have to have. 12 original copies to be able to provide to each institution. It's just, it's a huge pain in the butt. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And, and, and in most states, the executor can be paid from the estate. And sometimes I have a, I have a situation where someone's like, I feel, guilt, I feel guilty doing that. And I'm like, you should not feel guilty because you are working very hard to settle this estate. Yeah. yeah and I think, I think Sean also has a story about kind of corporate trustees, corporate executors. Um, and I think it's a really hard business to be in. Uh, I've seen a ton of articles recently about you know big estates where the uh, beneficiaries are actually suing the corporate executor because they feel like the estate was mismanaged, it took too long to distribute, wasn't distributed properly, they charged too much for the uh, for the services. So it can be really sticky. And so if you don't have like a financially savvy friend, you might just think, oh, I'll just hire a company to do this. But companies don't really have a strong incentive to do it because it's so messy. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. Um, so the in this case, the, the client had an attorney that they worked with. Um, and I kept kind of bothering them that they need to meet up with this attorney to get their documents in place. And they said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I have a corporate uh, kind of relationship in, in process. And I was like, okay, great. And so it, it was with uh, Wells Fargo. And um, it turns out when the eventuality came, we went to Wells Fargo and said, you know, hey, what are you doing? And their response was, oh, well, we're not doing anything. And we were like, why? And the response was, the estate of this client isn't over $2.5 million. And we don't work with clients who don't have $2.5 wow. And that was it. And I just shut the door. So, cool. yeah, it's a pretty cold world. <laughs> <laughs> right? All right. Well, what resources do you recommend people go to for more, for more advice and guidance? Yeah. So, I think one of the great resources, which hasn't been mentioned yet, is um, a letter from Rule Your Retirement Days. And I think Robert should jump in on that. Yeah, so and we've mentioned it on the show before, but one of the very first early subscribers to Rule Retirement was Bob Hasmiller, just a great guy. Um, and every year he wrote a letter to his wife, who was not as as financially savvy. She was very professionally successful, but she just was not into all this stuff. And he said he laid out, "This is where all our documents are. This is where our insurance policies are. If you need any help, these are the people to talk to." And he updated it every year so that she had something to work from if something happened to him. And very tragically, he was killed. In a bike accident when he was age 70. So his wife, Sue, was able to access that document. And so uh, we publish it. It's part of Rule Retirement, but we publish it for free on full.com. You can find it at www.full.com slash retirement slash letter dot ASPX. 
and provide the whole template because Bob actually wrote a couple of explanations of how he does it. It's very helpful. And just and I've been following it since you know, for years, not exactly, but even when I went on vacation uh, a month ago, I sent an email to my sister-in-law saying, something happens, this is where you go to find all the documents you need, my will and all that stuff, in case anything happens. You'll be happy to know this is just um, sort of spread among full culture, because I reviewed someone else's letter. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, another fool came to me and was like, I wrote the letter, you know, do you want to take a look at it? And I was like... Uh, if it if you don't see it as an invasion of privacy, <laughs> yes, I really want to read it. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and part of it is just there's so much that you have, all your accounts, all your things, and if something were to happen to you, would people know where to find it? I was talking to someone, and he was, it was a, he's a financial planner, he was saying someone he works with had a young kid in the family, just casually mentioned that he had this account where he was trading like cryptocurrency and stuff like that, but whatever, <laughs> like it was the only mention of this account anywhere. And unfortunately, this young person passed away. But if wow. they didn't have that one mention, they would have never known it existed. And, and, and every financial services firm has all these basically dead accounts because someone passed away or forgot about them, and no one has touched them for years, if not decades. And a controversial take a little bit, these documents are really nice to have in place. So often, when I'm taking a call from a customer because they're prompted to have us manage their assets for the benefit of their spouse or loved one. It always is interesting to me that they, this partner of theirs, they view as almost unable to talk about it. I'm like, well, why don't we consider bringing them on the phone? Like, let's loop <laughs> them into the conversation. You've self-certified that they are just desperately avoiding talking about finances. But I think we should be more open to the idea of having people kind of uniformly talk about finances, both your husband and wife or partner. Um, it doesn't have to be some third party because you deem the other partner to not want to do it. Yeah, and I think specifically with the topic of death, the U.S. is unique in its avoidance of the topic. Yeah. Whereas when we, you know, I've noticed when I talk to international clients or folks that have, you know, immigrated to the U.S., they're like, yeah, when I kick the bucket, here's what's going to happen, and da-da-da-da-da. There's no shyness around the topic, or much less, I would say, on average. Um, whereas in the U.S., there's this presumption that if we talk about death, you must be wishing it upon the other person <laughs> or something. And so it's really avoided. And we joked a little bit about like having a party to talk about like what you want to happen when you die, but I don't actually see that as being like that far-fetched of an idea. I might actually plan one. I'll invite you all. Give a PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> charts, and PowerPoint kills a party. I found. <laughs> I, could, I could help you make a good PowerPoint. We could have fun with it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of other kind of resources, I'll I'll put a um, sort of a, a pitch out there for a book that I found really helpful as a you know, caretaker watching someone in their last days. Um, and it is called Final Gifts. And it's a book that's been written by a couple of hospice nurses just about what to expect when someone is in their last days and um, things that sound really crazy aren't that crazy, actually, at that stage in life. Wonderful. Did you want to add something? 
Well, I don't think we mentioned, but obviously, if you haven't considered talking with a professional, a professional would be someone who's good to talk to, either a financial advisor or directly with estate planning attorneys. These are just steps you should take. Have the conversation, see where it goes, and then get an informed decision. Thanks, you guys, for coming in. Um, I'm going to do a little uh, disclosure and all that good stuff, but I'm going to ask you guys to stick around so we can end on a slightly happier note. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Our sister company, Motley Fool Wealth Management, is a registered investment advisor that can help put your financial plan and investing needs in the context of your big life transitions. If you've enjoyed learning from Megan and Sean or the other Motley Fool Wealth Management planners we've had on the show, you can get even more of them in your life. Visit foolwealth.com slash radio. At foolwealth.com slash radio, you can find podcast notes and resources and even book a no-obligation appointment with Sean or Megan or another planner you've probably heard on the show. Please consider the risk, cost, and suitability of investments before choosing any investment professionals. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Motley Fool Wealth Management does not guarantee the results of any of its advice or account management. All right, I promised that we were going to end on a slightly happier note. We'll try. Okay, all right. So we're going to test your uh, knowledge of crazy will requests. And so I pull all of these, well, most of these from a Mental Floss article by Ethan Trex. Uh, so thank you, Ethan Trax. I'm just cribbing everything from you. All right, are you ready? <laughs> We're ready. Henrik Hein, the German poet, left his entire fortune to his wife, but with one catch: she had to remarry because. Rick, do you want to play? Because. Um... <laughs> no, I don't want to play. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you say he was a poet? He was a poet. He was going to leave her his entire fortune, but she had to remarry before she could get the money because they were never actually married. <laughs> he wanted they didn't have an heir and he wanted an heir. No. He wanted all the poetry to still be true. <laughs> he wanted his death to be tragic. Yeah. He said because then there will be at least one man to regret my death. Uh <laughs> Oh, burn. Oh, yeah. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Woo. All right. Next one. S. Sanborn, a 19th century New England hatter, made a macabre bequest to his friend a pair of drums made from his own skin. The friend received further instructions to go to Bunker Hill each June 17th and play what song on the drums? What year is this? 19th century. Well, the. Yankee Doodle, I guess. Hey, you Whoa. got it! Yeah. Nice. Very good. Yeah, yeah, Yankee Doodle. I don't know how you play Yankee Doodle Dandy on a drum, but... Bum, 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 bum. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Good King wants a stress. It sounded nothing like Yankee Doodle. All right. The Canadian attorney Charles Mylar died a childless bachelor, but he left $568,000 to the mother who gave birth to the most children in Toronto in the 10 years following his death in 1928. This bequest prompted what Canadians called the Baby Derby, as mothers raced to win the fortune. Finally, in 1938, four winners split the prize after giving birth to how many babies apiece? So the most babies in 10 years following his death. Well, so if we say one a year, it's yeah. 10, but we, got to, we want to be even more surprised. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with 13. It's a lot of babies. It's a lot of babies. Uh, I'll do prices right. 12. <laughs> 
One dollar. One dollar. prices are one. One baby. The answer is nine. Nine babies. I was thinking twins. Right? Maybe someone would have just had a ton of twins. All right. It's not clear how Henry Budd originally made 200,000 pounds, but when he died in 1862, he left his fortune to his two sons on the condition that they never grow what? Beards. Yeah. Weed. <laughs> That's a good one too. Bitcoin. <laughs> yes, that neither sully their lips with a mustache. Uh, close. Close. Yeah. Beard is close. Last one. About an inch. Very close. When longtime comic book writer and editor Mark Grunewald died in 1996, fans of Marvel Comics probably thought they'd seen the last of the former Captain America writer. Gruenwald had other ideas, though. What did he request be done with his ashes? Hmm. Turned into a comic book? Well, if, like it was, if it was Hunter S. Thompson, it would be shoot, shot from a cannon, but... Mm-hmm. But it's not. But it's not. <laughs> That's... Turned into a shield. Yeah. When was this? 96. Put in a movie somehow? I would have said turned into a shield. I'm going to give it to Megan. He had his ashes mixed into the ink to be used to print the first trade paperback anthology of Squadron Supreme, one of his landmark creations. So I'll give that to Megan. So, again, I never keep score, so I guess we're all winners. Did you hear that very recently one of the actresses in Willy Wonka passed away? The one who played Violet Beauregard. Oh. Uh, but she she has died very poor, so the family is asking for money so that her ashes can be made into a glass sculpture. So you go find that GoFundMe page, and you can contribute to that if you'd like. I think there's other things I should spend money on. <laughs> is it a sculpture of a blueberry? Violet, you're turning uh, well, Sean, Megan, thank you so much for joining us and for capping off our series on major life events. This has been uh, a great series. We've gotten a lot of good feedback from people on it. Yeah. So thank you for doing it. Our pleasure. Glad to contribute. All right. What's so, the bad feedback? <laughs> uh, you got the bad feedback, remember? Yes. Because he was such a, such a cynic about marriage. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> don't tell his wife. <laughs> like, was no, it, yeah, so. your advice was like, yes, get a prenup. Absolutely, no, yeah, yeah. get a prenup. You, like, huh? Yeah, get married and then have... yeah, postnup. Yeah, just get all Very the nups <laughs> and get some people, every nup out there. <laughs> nup and uh, And some people thought that maybe you uh, were not enough of a romantic to be offering advice on couples and cash. Almost certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's the show. It's edited romantically by Rick Angdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.